from the enemy and trying to work to dissuade them and really push against them. But uh, there is also an internal battle going on as the people continue uh, year after year to struggle with feelings of rebellion and feelings of resistance against the Lord, not wanting to fully uh, kind of comply with his leading as he's pushing them toward the promised land, resisting his discipline. So, so there's, a, there's a tension here. And this is one of the enemy's tactics that is very subtle. And we don't necessarily always guard ourselves against it like, it, like it, we should. Because he wants to convince us that the external attacks, temptation and peer pressure and, and trying to undermine our faith, those, those ones that we know where we say, boy, I'm really under spiritual attack right now. I'm really being hit hard. He wants to convince us because he can't deny that that's happening. He knows we're smart enough to figure that out. He wants to convince us that that's the only real threat to our spiritual maturation. But at the same time, he is discounting a danger of an attack that can be just as damaging to our faith and just as damaging to our relationships, and yet it is much more hidden. This attack is an internal attack. It is the, the constant push to make us discouraged and dissatisfied and lacking in joy. And throughout Scripture, the Bible warns us about this threat. It gives us example after example of people who were controlled by this way of thinking and, and felt kind of justified in it and not realizing the damage that it was doing to their faith and the damage that it was doing to their witness. Now, there's no group of people in Scripture that exemplifies this more than the Jews in the Old Testament. And a few weeks ago, we began a series of studies called It's Time, and I kind of uh, issued, maybe issue's not the right word, or presented a challenge to us that we have 100 days uh, from the start of the series to the first of the year to really get aggressive about spiritual maturity. That by the end of the 100 days, by January 1, 2014, hard to believe that's the number we're dealing with, right? But by January 1, 2014, that we would be marked by holy behavior and a fresh outlook and a radical change in who we are. And this is a great uh, challenge that the Lord's given us. The enemy is fighting it very, very strongly, but we're not going to give in, right? Because the Lord is mighty to save and because he created the mountains and because he takes care of us and because Christ died for us. Everybody say amen. So we're not going to give in. We're not going to be dissuaded. We're not going to say, well, it's too hard because it's not too hard because we have the Lord on our side. So we started two weeks ago by talking about the importance of spending quality time in the presence of the Lord. And I hope over the last 14 days that has been something that you have done and you have taken more time and I have taken more time to, to really reside in the presence of the Lord for there to be constant communication and constant relationship. And last week, we talked about the outgrowth of that, which is a new calling to prayer. And we talked about wrestling in the spiritual arena and how there's a, there's a constant push against us to not call on the Lord. And yet, when we call on the Lord, it unleashes uh, His hand and unleashes His work. And we're going to believe that. We're going to go with that confidence as we go into our new prayer meeting in three weeks. And I really hope, again, that you're planning on coming to that because it's going to be a powerful time. Now, knowing those two are the foundation, knowing those were going to be one and two, I've wrestled over the last week with uh, what the Lord wants us 
to study next. Because initially when I uh, thought and prayed through this series, he gave me eight or nine ideas of, of things that we could study. And, and I've kind of been wrestling, Lord, which one comes next? And when I looked at this one, uh, this one was the most challenging to think about because it's really the most kind of in our face. It's the one that our pride's going to say, no, I don't, I don't want to buy into that one. And yet, it is vitally, vitally important that we address it and that we understand it and that we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us because we all struggle with it daily. It has been a battle for me this week. It has been something I've wrestled with this week, and I want to say that up front so you don't think I'm saying, well, I don't have the problem and you don't. This has been a struggle for me this week. And I want us to acknowledge this morning, and we're going to say it in a minute, that this, what I'm about to tell us, is a struggle for all of us, okay? So I want us on three to say, this is a struggle for me, even though you don't know what it is, okay? You're going to have to trust me, all right? So on three, let's say it very loudly, this is a struggle for me. One, two, three. This is a struggle for me. Good, it is. It is, I promise you. What should be easiest about knowing and trusting the Lord, which is having confidence in His sufficiency, can very quickly turn into an area of irritation and frustration. But if we can turn this one thing around, if we can mature in this area, it will literally change everything in our lives. So let's get right to the heart of it. And I'm going to ask a really hard question right at the start. You ready for the hard question? How many are ready for the hard question? You're going to regret that. I've asked this question to myself all week. The question is, how many times did I complain this week? How many times was I discouraged or disheartened and I let that boil over into what I said and what I did? Now, here comes the second hard question. Thinking critically, in how many of those situations was the frustration a result of not getting what I wanted? Or the potential of not getting what I want down the road? Now that has a lot of applications, doesn't it? I bet you're regretting now that you said you were ready. Because that, that challenges us. That hits us right where we are. And certainly there were times this week where our frustration or our, our difficulty uh, was understandable. And it was even justifiable. There's no question in our lives that, that there are situations and issues and maybe even people that legitimately frustrate us. But what about the times when that frustration went beyond that legitimacy and it turned into kind of a burr under our emotional and spiritual saddle that, that caused us to talk and act in a way that was unholy? Now, again, this has a lot of different applications. And as this happens, we start to lose our perspective and we start to walk right back into self-focus. So here's the challenge for this morning and then we're going to read the text. It is time, it is time that we conquer this and that we become a people who are full of joy and contentment in all things. How many affirm that and say that's a need for us? It is time that we become people who are full of joy and contentment in all things. But that's not going to be easy. It will be impossible. It will be impossible without continually living in the first two things, the presence of the Lord and continuous prayer. 
We will not have joy. We will not have contentment. It will be imposible. It will not happen if we do not live in the presence of the Lord and call on His name on a regular basis. But when we do that, God starts to produce joy in our lives. Because as we've said many times, in His presence is what? Fullness of joy. You're going to have to learn that verse because we're going to say that almost every week. All right, let's say it again. In His presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. That what needs, that's what needs to mark our lives. That's, that's going to be like a theme verse for prayer meeting. Because when we get in His presence, there is fullness of joy. There's not an absence. There's not a lack. There's not partial. It is the fullness of joy. But this propensity that we have to be kind of discontented and lacking in joy is a constant point of spiritual and emotional attack. And that's evidenced here with the nation of Israel as they go from Egypt to the Promised Lands. Now, there are a lot of studies, a lot of passages we could study about this topic, but uh, I really uh, think that Numbers 20 expresses it really, really well. So if you're already there, Numbers chapter 20. Did I give you the reference earlier? Okay, good. If I didn't, it was in the bulletin. Anyway, Numbers 20, not hard to find. Let's read 13 verses here and kind of set the, set the uh, situation of what's going on. Then the sons of Israel, verse 1, the whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt? Now, really notice, uh, forgive me for interrupting, really notice the words that are being used. Every word has impact. So there's nothing accidental in what they're saying, and there's nothing accidental in what the Spirit includes. So let's read verse 5 again. Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell in their faces. The glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron. Assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You will thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly uh, in front of the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Uh-oh, Moses got a little attitude. Shall we bring forth water to you out of this rock? Notice the pronoun there. Shall we bring forth water to you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand. He was supposed to speak to it. And he struck the rock twice with his rod. And the water came forth abundantly in the congregation, and the beast drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you didn't believe me, Treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you will not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. Now, go back to verse 1, because when we read that it was the first month, again, every detail the Spirit includes is important. It was the first month. That is the first month of the 40th year of wandering. 
This is the start of the final year. That means that they're just about done walking. They're just about done fulfilling the sentence that they had when they rebelled at Sinai and built the golden calf and contended with the Lord there. He says, now you're just about finished. Now, as this happening, they're about to go into the land that God promised way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. They're about to go into the land that God delivered them out of Egypt to go into. They're about to go into the land that they've waited to go into as they've wandered around the wilderness. And I want you to keep that thought right in the back of your mind because we're going to come back into it in a minute because it's important. But before we analyze that, let's summarize in in 30 seconds what happened in the prior 39 years. On the negative side, there had been millions of deaths. Everybody but Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb to the tune of an average of 140 people dropping dead every day. All their grandparents, their parents, their relatives, some children, they had all been left behind in the desert. And that was an outgrowth of their deep rebellion, of their resistance against the Lord's leading, and against their idol and self-worship. Simply put, they had failed the Lord continually, and they had often done so without any remorse. That was the negative. On the positive side because the positive always outweighs the negative. The positive was that the Lord had worked. Everything that had gone well was not a result of what they had done. Everything had gone well because a result of what God had done. And that was personally humbling to them, and yet it showed the incredible patience and sufficiency and help of God. Every step of the way, they had His protection. Every step of the way, they had His provision. Every step of the way, they had his promises. Every step of the way, they had his presence. He had never failed them. He had never left them. He had never thrown up his hands and said, I'm done with you. He had never said, I'm not going to take you to the promised land. You've done too much. He stayed with them. Every step of the way, they were reminded of the Lord's hand of salvation. They were reminded of his security. They were reminded of his unfailing sufficiency against sin, against Pharaoh, against themselves, against other nations. Every step of the way, they had his clear direction from that cloud. Every step of the way, they had his unmistakable doctrine that God had given to Moses at Sinai. Every step of the way, they were walking toward this wonderful destination that God had promised to them. The point is, they had everything they needed. They lacked absolutely nothing. They had everything they needed to be full of joy and contentment in Him, even though just knowing the Lord and being a recipient of His grace would have been enough. So we have to ask, why are they so lacking in joy and contentment? There's not one thing that they can pinpoint and say, God, you haven't helped us. God, you have been deficient. God, you have just not come through for us. Even when they rebelled, even when they sinned against Him, blatantly, God said, I'm going to show you mercy and forgiveness and love. But their response wasn't reciprocal. The entire time in the wilderness, they're complaining. They're rebelling. They're they're griping about Moses. They're blaming him. They're plotting to overthrow him. They've got this weird longing for Egypt. They're, They're murmuring underneath their breath. 
they, they at several times directly accuse God of not doing right by them. There's a complete and utter lack of joy and lack of contentment. They've just experienced the goodness of God. They've just experienced God's deliverance. They, they, they have a sure future, but they're absolutely consumed by fear to the point that the first time they came to Kadesh, which was in chapter 14, 38 years before, the first time they came to Kadesh, right after Sinai, when you would think they would be so humbled that they had sinned against God and that God had struck them so many dead, you would think they would just be walking on on tiptoe saying, Lord, we don't want to offend you. But the first time they get to Kadesh, they're so irritated that they don't know where they're going that they threaten to stone Moses. Isn't it amazing how fear debilitates our thinking? Isn't it amazing how, how irrational it makes us when we aren't in control? We have to ask, why did they think and act this way? Why, why did they... Why weren't they satisfied? Why did they keep griping? Why, why wasn't there any joy? And then we have to transfer that to us, even if we don't struggle with it on that level. We have to ask the same thing because we have the exact same advantages as the Israelites did, and yet we have so much more. We have the complete Word of God. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We have an understanding of salvation that they did not have because Jesus Christ came down and died for us, and we have a clear commission and a clear purpose given to us by Jesus himself. But all of that will be tainted if we don't get this one thing right. We cannot allow what we want to rob us of our joy. Hear that this morning, because that's a hard sentence to say, and it's a hard sentence to to embrace. We cannot allow what we want to rob us of our joy. And when we look back at the passage, look back at chapter 20 for a minute, the Spirit shows us that there are certain uh, precipitators, certain things that hinder our joy. Now, in these, if we allow these precipitators, these these triggers to, to put us into kind of discontentment rather than divine joy, then we're going to be in crisis like the Israelites were. But if we can understand them, we'll know how to deal with them. And if we know how to deal with them, we'll be able to mitigate against the temptation. So let's break apart the passage for a couple minutes. I'm hot. I'm sorry. I'm taking this off. Let's, let's break apart the passage for a couple minutes and look at it kind of verse by verse to understand the nature of this temptation. Now, where does it start? Where does discontentment usually start? We see it in verse 2. The first problem they faced was a material crisis. A temporal, material crisis. They had no water. Kadesh Barnea was in the wilderness. It was near what would now be the southern border of the Promised Land, the southern border of Canaan. So, if you know the map of Israel, you have a general understanding of geology, uh, geography. You'll know how Israel set up next to the Mediterranean with the Jordan River on the, on the east edge. Okay, so on the southern border was Kadesh Barnea. And it did have a water source. In fact, if they could throw the picture up just for a second, show you a picture of what Kadesh looks like. You can see this is barren wilderness. There's no McDonald's within 100 miles of this. But you can see this little strip 
in this valley. This is where Kadesh Barnea was. So you see by the fact that there's green there, anytime you're in the desert and you see green, what do you know is there? Water, right? So here's a place that would be an oasis, a respite for them to, to reside. And many times they came back to Kadesh because it was that. So going to Kadesh, they see green and they say to themselves, there's going to be water. Problem is, while that had existed 38 years before, the first time they came to Kadesh, when they come back near the end of the 40 years, the water is apparently gone. Expecting to find water, expecting to say, now we can water the camels and the oxen, and now the kids can have a drink because they're parched, and now we can get refreshed a little bit. Rather than that, when they get there, there's no water. Now, stop for a second, because when we hit those points in our life, we say to ourselves, oh no, right? Instead of stopping and saying, the Lord's always provided for our needs, He has protected us against death at Passover in Egypt. He he gave us fresh water. He gave us bread that fell from heaven every morning. He gave us quail that flew through the camp so we could reach up. Easiest kind of hunting, right, hunters? Just reach up. It's not even a challenge. Break its neck and eat. So God gave them water. He gave them food. But instead of remembering that, when they get to Kadesh, and all of a sudden, hey, where's the water? Instead, they panic. One of the facts that we need to realize is that complaining is almost always based on the material instead of the eternal. Frustration, discontentment, is almost always based on the material rather than the eternal. So what does the enemy do? He tries to get us to focus on the temporal. He gets us to value what we have now rather than storing up treasures that are in heaven. He wants us to not remember the power and goodness and sufficiency of the Lord because he also wants us to forget the Lord's already defeated him. The Lord has already defeated Satan. It's no longer a contest. Now, Satan lies and he says, oh, I'm still fighting. I'm still going to win. In fact, I think in his delusional mind, he almost believes he still will win. But he won't. Come on, that deserves an amen. He won't win. He does not win. And yet he keeps lying to us and saying, God's not sufficient. Now, this is the second essence of the temptation. He wants us to think of ourselves instead of trusting in the Lord. He wants us to think of ourselves instead of trusting the Lord. And that's the second factor that leads us to discontentment and lack of joy. Look back at verse 2 for a minute. That the people assemble against Moses and Aaron. There's a, there's a mob mentality now. There's some, they want some vigilante justice. All right, enough of you guys. 40 years wandering in the wilderness. We're sick of it. This is what the conversation is like. We're sick of it. You bring us back to this place. This used to be a good place. Now we get here. There's no water. We can't believe your failure. Come on. What is going on here? They forget the four decades of leading this stubborn group. They forget the times when, when Moses stood up for them to the Lord, where, where, God, where he went to the Lord and said, Lord, please don't destroy the people. I, I know they are ticking you off. I know you want to wear them out. Lord, don't do it. 
They forget the faithfulness of Moses' character. None of that matters in this moment. Why? Look at it. Because the people are thirsty and there's no water. And because the people are thirsty and there's no water, what is happening now is the only thing that's important, right? How, how many know that's not true? What is happening now is, is most important. Moses, we don't care that you've been faithful for 40 years. And you've stood up for us and you begged God to show mercy on us and you've led us and you've trusted God even when we complained and gripe. Moses, you are a, no, no, we don't have water. You're done. Let's string them up, guys. Come on. Get some rope. Thinking of ourselves instead of trusting the Lord. And that leads to the third problem. Look at it. A distorted perspective. First time they were in Kadesh, they asked Moses, Moses, come on now, send some spies into Canaan. Send some spies into Canaan. Do you know the only reason they sent spies into Canaan? Because they wanted to make sure that God was being straight with them. All right, we need these spies to check out two things. First of all, God promised us that this land is filled with milk and honey. All right, let's, go, let's see if God's really being honest. Because I don't know, this is desert. I don't, I don't know if we believe that. So let's test the Lord. Let's see if he's really being honest. And the second thing is, you know, even though God promised Abraham, this is your land, and gave us specific parameters of where the land will be, and said, I will destroy all your enemies before you, and he's already proven that by destroying Pharaoh and getting us through the desert of this place. Even though God told us all of that, let's go in and see what the people look like so we know whether God's going to actually give us victory. No faith, no belief, no confidence, no assurance. They said, we want to know if God is being honest. Not like they should be picky after 400 years of slavery or anything, but, but don't let the facts get in the way. Moses pleaded with the people. It's in chapter 13. You can look at it later. He pleaded with the people. Trust the Lord. Come on, guys. You've got to trust the Lord. And he sends spies in, and the spies come back, and they say it's exactly like the Lord described. This is going to be awesome. You have no idea how great this is. And they said, the people are formidable. Yes, we will grant you that. But two of them, Joshua and Caleb said, not a problem. The Lord is on our side. We are going to do this, and this is going to be awesome. And the people said, we don't believe you. We don't believe you. Moses, you need to die how dare you lead us to this place? Now they're back 38 years later. And they're back in Kadesh Barnea. And it's painfully obvious they should have listened to the Lord instead of seeing the obstacle. And now they come to this place. And they're ready to go in. And they need to trust the Lord. And instead of saying, God is going to conquer for us a land that is 8,000 square miles he is going to give this to us and move all our enemies out of the way and bless us as a nation finally and put us in the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he proved through his sacrifice. Instead of, instead of living in the joy of that, they say, we don't have any water. Instead of looking at the land before them and saying, praise God, what is he going to do? How would God be so gracious to us? 
to do this work in our midst. Instead of that, they say, we're thirsty and we need this and we don't have it. So Moses, you failed. God, you failed. We don't want to follow anymore. We're done. Now what's incredible about this is the timing. I mean, that, that's hard enough to believe that we could get into that way of thinking, but we do. It's more common than we think. But, but even more than that is the timing of it. They obviously had been counting because if you look back at verse 1, they say this is the first month of the final year. And as hard as this has all been because of our sin and our rebellion, we, we, don't you think they would have been excited? Finally, finally, two million of our ancestors have died in the wilderness. We've walked through this barren desert day after day after day after day after day for 39 years. Now we are at the brink of realizing the promise of God and we are going to celebrate. You know, there's a very important spiritual principle here that the Lord really, really brought to my heart this week. And I want you to write this down if you write nothing else this morning because this, this to me is so critical for us. We have to be careful always that we don't lose faith right at the moment when our faith should actually be increasing. We have to be careful that our faith doesn't decline Right at the moment when the Lord is saying, instead of declining, I actually want you to go to the next level. So don't fall back. Don't start to worry. Don't start to say, I I don't know. This is now the time not to fall back. This is the time to advance. And I'm convinced that's a word of the Lord for me this morning. I'm convinced that's a word of the Lord for us this morning. Because that's what Israel did. They squandered the potential blessing of God by not being in the center of God's will and not saying, look, this has been hard, but you've been faithful. You promised us that land. We are going forward. Instead, they did just the opposite. And they fell back into doubt and dissatisfaction. Listen, selfishness is so unreasonable. It's so illogical. It's like they learned absolutely nothing in the wilderness. And that way of thinking has a very distinctive characteristic to us because when we're dissatisfied, what do we do? We usually start to blame other people. Instead of taking responsibility for ourselves and being part of the solution. Look at the illogical criticism and accusation in verses 4 to 5. This this would be hilarious if it wasn't so sad. Oh, Moses, if only we could have just gotten to die in the wilderness with our ancestors instead of coming here to the edge of the land that the Lord promised we'll possess in a year. If we could have just died in the desert, it would have been so much better than getting to go into the promised land in 12 months. Moses, you purposely, you purposely brought us out here here to die. When you came down to Egypt to rescue us, oh, you had this wonderful master plan. I'll take them out into the wilderness and they'll all die and I'll laugh. Moses, why did you force us to leave Egypt? We lived in the lap of luxury, getting whipped every day in the hot sun, making bricks without any straw. It was just the greatest. 
How could you have made us, two million of us, how could you have forcefully led us away from Pharaoh and brought us out here into this wilderness? At least there we had water. I'm not making that up. That's exactly what the text says. This is their line of thinking. Never once in the text does someone in the crowd say, the Lord's been good. You know what? Everybody, shh. We need to pray and ask the Lord for help. We should exhaust ourselves in prayer before we start sweating our problems. We should exhaust ourselves in prayer before we start setting our problems. Not one person says, all right, let's think about this for a minute. There's been water here before. It's still green. There's got to be water here somewhere. Moses is tired. Let, let's go find some water. There's got to be a spring. Let's start digging. There obviously is water here. God's going to bring water out of a rock. There's no positivity. There's no somebody saying, come on now, the Lord's good. The Lord's given us resources. We've gotten this far. God's going to not let us die at Kadesh on the edge of the promised land, which he said in 12 months we're going into. Now, one person calls on the Lord. Instead, instead of faith, instead of seeking the Lord, instead of confident action, look at the text. They just complain. And that mindset, when we allow that in our lives, creates a resistance to change and to growth. And it creates a resistance to serve the Lord and each other. And this wasn't the first time they had done this. In chapter 14, the last time they were there, they had actually accused the Lord, not Moses. They had accused the Lord of bringing them out there to be slaughtered by their enemies. And that seems extreme. And the Lord made them wander 40 years for it. But that way of thinking is, is more subtly common than we think. It, it goes something like this. The Lord isn't helping us. E- either God isn't faithful or, or we've messed up. But, but we better solve it. Let's, let's not ask the Lord. Let's just, let's just figure out an answer. If nothing else, if nothing else, they should have prayed. If nothing else, they should have said, there is a crisis here. We don't understand it. We don't know what to do. But Lord, you're always sufficient. You're always faithful. You have led us this far. We are going to call on you. None of them do it until we get to verse 6 when Moses and Aaron say, we're going to the tent of meeting. They go to the tabernacle and they go into the presence of the Lord and they fall on their face because they know that any time we call on the Lord, God answers. They know any time we call on the Lord, God always answers. So this is the turning point. This is where everything should get back. And they go to the presence of the Lord and God says, I'll give you water. About time somebody asked me, I'll give you water. Take that staff that you've had since you were in the wilderness. The one you threw down in the presence of Pharaoh and it turned into a snake and swallowed up all the other snakes. Take that staff and you walk up to the rock and you stand there and you speak to the rock and I will bring water from that rock and the people have plenty to drink. And Moses says, okay, I'll do that. 
But here's where the account takes a sad twist that shows how lack of joy and lack of contentment can have a significant impact on the people around us. Look back at verses 9 to 12. Moses takes the rod just as the Lord had commanded him. That's not an accidental phrase there. Holy Spirit wants to remind us exactly what the Lord had said. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. Everything's good. Middle of verse 10, everything's fine until Moses opens his mouth. Listen now, you rebels. He's correct, right? They are rebellious. But there's an edge there. Listen now, you rebels. Notice the pronoun. Shall we bring forth this water to you out of this rock? The Lord said he would give them water just by speaking to it. But in his anger and his building frustration with the people, Moses not only has sarcasm in his voice and not only mocks the people, but he then hits the rock twice. But what he says, I think, is more revealing than his action. He implies that this miracle is going to be done by him and Aaron instead of the Lord. And he scolds them for their unbelief. And he says, you have dishonored the Lord. And what's ironic is that the next thing we see Moses doing is not believing the Lord and dishonoring the Lord. He says to them, you don't believe and you've dishonored God. And then he takes the rock and goes, whack, whack. And in that moment, he doesn't believe the Lord and he dishonors the Lord. He allowed his heart to be influenced by the people as they doubted the Lord and it cost them. Their thinking bled over into his thinking. And he, as the, as the really one of probably three or four holy people that are walking at that point, one, one of the three or four, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, were, were unsure really about Aaron because he had messed up so many times. So let's say there are three holy people in this bunch, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And the holiest of them all, Moses, allows his heart to be taken down because he allowed himself to be influenced by this. And he stops trusting in the Lord. And he takes actions into his hands. And God says to him and Aaron, you're not going in. I brought you all this way. You've stayed faithful. But you know what? At the time where you should have celebrated me, you did not celebrate me. You doubted me. And what is so sad, look at the people in verse 11. They're so busy celebrating what's going on. Yeah, we got water. Yeah, flipping it on their hands and feeding their kids. And and they're dancing around all happy. And they don't realize what's going on around them with Moses. This was some expensive water. They received it from the Lord for free, but the cost of getting it was far more than it ever should have been. And that, let's, let's conclude, that should cause us to ask ourselves, what's the cost? What is the cost when you and I become self-absorbed and don't keep the right perspective? When we're marked by discontentment and complaining rather than joy and satisfaction in the Lord's presence, there is a price to that. Moses says, In Numbers 32, it hindered the people from wanting to follow God's promise about going into the land. Deuteronomy 1 says this attitude discourages each other, that it has an impact on each other. How do we deal with this? Are we contributing to it? Or or let's, let's end on a positive. Are we contributing to it? Or are we saying, 
I'm going to be all out committed. I'm going to be committed to a fresh way of thinking, to a holy perspective, to a confident faith, to an assurance in God. And as I commit myself and trust myself to the Lord, I am going to exude strength in the Lord's provision. I'm going to exude confidence in the Lord's provision. I'm not going to doubt for a minute. I'm going to be unwavering like James 1 says. I'm never going to move an inch from trusting in the Lord because he's never failed me. He has always provided. He's always been there. He is able. He's sufficient. He will give us exactly what we need and oh, so much more. How would we ever doubt him? I was convicted of that during that last song. How would we ever doubt the provision of the Lord? How would we ever doubt the sufficiency of the Lord? God has never failed us. And listen, I say that knowing some of you are really struggling this morning. But God has never failed us. He will never forsake us. Carry that confidence in your heart this morning. Carry that confidence in your heart every single day. Because God's faithful. Let's close our eyes. This is a hard word and this is very subtle and it's very easy for us to get pulled into this. But this morning I want to challenge us because we can stop this by deciding to stop it. We can hinder the work of the enemy who has already been defeated. putting our full confidence, our full faith in the Lord. This is a constant rub. This is a constant push against us. And it gets tiring. What is going to be the picture, the reality that we live confident, persevering faith or discouraged, disheartened doubt. As I said earlier, this is something I've wrestled with this week. And it's not been fun. But I want to encourage you this morning, if you're struggling with this, and this has been part of who you are for the last few months or few years, or maybe it's been longer than that. I want you to hear this morning that the promises of God are true, that the presence of God is with you, and He will always, always be sufficient. Turn your heart away from the doubt and the accusation that the enemy is putting in your mind and trust the Lord like you never have before. And that will fill us with joy and with contentment. There is no joy and no contentment apart from the Lord. So whatever your struggle this morning, whatever your discontentedness, I don't know what it is. I know what mine are. I want to take just a moment. Let's submit that to the Lord right now. Just between you and Him. Present that to Him. Confess that to Him. 
and ask Him to give you strength and hope and confidence in the days ahead. Lord, we sang it earlier that you are holy, you are mighty, and you are worthy of our praise. You never disappoint us, you never fail us, you never leave us. You watch over us as a father watches over his children, even in the night, preparing fresh mercy for us for today, preparing fresh mercy for us for tomorrow. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to fear. We don't have to be discouraged. Lord, you know the difficulties that we face. You're acquainted with them. You experience them too. And Lord, this is going to be a constant struggle for us. But I pray you would build up our faith, Lord. I pray you would build up our confidence in you. Looking at all that you've done for us. Encouraging each other. Calling on your name. Studying your word, Lord. Everything that you've given us, every resource designed to build our faith. So Lord, please build it stronger and stronger every day. And when the enemy comes and attacks, I pray that we would resist him strongly and turn back to you. Say, Lord, you're faithful. We praise you and exalt you for who you are. We thank you for your constant, unending love and sufficiency. And I pray you would encourage us this morning, Lord. Encourage our spirits. Remove the discontentment. And strengthen us to be people that love and trust you with every ounce of our being. We thank you and praise you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.